0: get started welcome everybody thank you for joining us again or for your first reading meeting with us taking time out of your weekend to listen to us blather on hopefully in a useful manner we'll see mark's got a funny little thing he wants to maybe set the tone for them today right
1: yeah hi everyone i don't
0: know if your audio is working people hearing that? I'm not hearing that.
1: You're not seeing it.
0: I'm seeing it. I'm not hearing it.
1: We'll do it next time.
0: Okay. (laughs) I could pull it up.
1: Yeah. You know, it's always something. (laughs) Um, So are we, uh, uh, is our audio and video good for everyone?
0: Seems like everybody, yes. I'm getting thumbs up. Good.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, all the planning in the world um, hi everyone so um, today we're doing something a little different it, we're going to be doing a ask me anything uh, q a and um uh, so I, I just wanted to say you know we're doing this live and um, we don't have um seven second delay you know as as they would with uh, professional uh media uh so uh, we're we're going to try to be careful with what we say, and, um, uh, uh, and uh, but please realize it is uh, extemporaneous, and uh, we will be able to discuss things uh, on the website later if uh, there are issues to follow up on. So, um, with that in mind, um, I think we wanted to start with one general sort of orienting question, Molly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so some people have sent in questions in advance and so we'll get to maybe some of those and then also take questions from the, the audience here and just as a like a logistical thing for the recording your face will not be on the recording if you want to if, if we call on you and you want to ask your question that's you will you will uh, your audio will show up and not your face just so you know. But this question was one that I thought would be a good way to kind of like set expectations of uh, kind of what can, what kind of questions can we answer? What does science have to share with us? So this question was saying, in one of the meetings, Mark commented that it's just not possible to isolate all the various elements of different instructional programs or curricula, study them scientifically, and draw conclusions about what's most effective. Can you say more about the challenges of conducting this research, how some of these challenges might be overcome, so that researchers can at least study some key differences in approaches, and maybe find something that points in a certain direction. It seems odd to just give up on figuring out some of this empirically. So this is kind of this question of, what can what can we answer with science, what can we not?
1: Yeah, so it, it is an important question, and I, I hope that's not exactly the message. That's not exactly the message I was trying to get across. Um, I think the issue that's most on practitioners' mind, minds is, well, What works best, uh, and will someone do a study that shows this? What I was trying to convey is, um, uh, first of all, we can do more research on what the effective feature, what features make programs effective. People do do that kind of research, and I I actually wrote an article for Reading Research Quarterly in which I was trying to push some of my science researcher colleagues to do more of that kind of research. However, I think some people have the idea that it's just a matter of, well, we need to do the study, right? We just do the randomized control trials in which we pit uh, this program against that program against that program, and then we see which one works best, and then we'll have the answer. And um, I would like to lower expectations about that because I don't think that's actually the kind of evidence that's going to be most helpful. Um, One thing is what I was trying to convey is you want to find out what's crucial about this program when a lot of other things are varying, the situations, the participants, uh, the kids, the teachers, the resources—I uh, was. Those are the many other factors I was referring to, and so what that does is it makes it very, very hard when people do these broad sort of comparisons between programs to really kind of tease tease out um, well what are the real um, effects that are due to the program when you take all these other factors uh, uh, into, into consideration. Um, I could show you, there are studies that are of that sort, and uh, next time maybe we'll show, or on the website, maybe we'll show some uh, data slides from them. I don't think you'd find them that satisfying. What kind of
2: studies are
0: you talking about?
1: I'm talking about studies in which um, people did fairly large scale, randomized controlled trial kinds of studies that um, attempted to look at um, a couple of different approaches to some aspect of early reading um, and then took into account you know many of these other um, factors leading to a, um, a structural equation model which is a statistical analysis of the um, of, uh, all the boxes representing the different factors and arrows indicating what their relations are to one another. Basically you don't get very clear answers from that and those studies are exceedingly difficult to do. The idea that we could get control over all of the factors that predict whether one particular kid in one particular classroom and in one particular setting, how well they're going to do,
0: mm-hmm.
1: given the kind of instruction they have and the kind of materials they have, there's no research that is at that level of um, predictive value um, precision. What we can do is talk about properties of programs that are more or less effective based on various kinds of um, evidence, which suggest characteristics that programs should incorporate, and maybe a lot of some things just equally as important things to avoid. So, you know, at this point, we can say a lot of things about what not to do, and we can say some positive things about what to do. But if people are looking for the single knockout study that shows this one is better than this one, I don't think that will ever happen. Uh, the, the, the logistics of that and, and the, the kind of data that result are so complex. It doesn't mm-hmm. really give you the clear answer that you want. The better thing would be to say, What are the ingredients? What are the ingredients of successful programs? And there, mm-hmm. I think there's a huge amount of evidence. And that's where the recommendations really are and where I think we can be really firm. And the thing about those recommendations is they apply to every classroom and every kid. You know, you can say, These are properties that good programs will have. And how you adapt them in your particular setting, how how they will be implemented in a particular setting. That's a further step. And we can try to give you as much information, useful information as possible, but eventually there's going to be a teacher who understands what the properties of good programs are, who knows what kinds of things to be looking out for, who can understand you know how to interpret um, Assessments and 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 guide kids towards um, uh, appropriate sorts of um, additional instruction and and so on. But at at the end of the line, there's going to be a teacher who has to do that interpretation. And what we can do is try to make it give them the basis for making very informed decisions. So if someone people are always asking me like, well, which which phonics program do you want to recommend? I got two problems. Um, the first is what I just said. It's really hard to do tests that show this program is better than that. However, there is evidence that would say uh, a good program would have these kinds of characteristics and would avoid these kinds of characteristics. So if we could keep the discussions today at that level of what are the properties we're looking for? What are, how are they uh, helping us reach various kinds of goals? That's something I can express informed opinions about. Mm -hmm. Um, Particular uh, comparisons between this program and that, this probably isn't the best um, venue for it. Uh, I, I will try to be say things that are prudent and helpful without, you know, being evasive.
0: So um So if I'm like interpreting what you're saying correctly, it feels like there's kind of like a, a Goldilocks in the middle area that you're comfortable the feeling like science speaks about. It's not speaking about yeah. huge, huge big programs, the entire curriculum, nor is it necessarily speaking about the nitty-gritty of this exact scope and sequence is the one that's empirically tested
1: no though you know i do think we have suggestions that teachers and and uh, will be able to that would inform decisions about right.
0: scope but it's not sequence. at the level of this has been tested at these levels,
1: this No, and, levels. and I, you know, I'm a researcher. I'm not in the business of designing curricula. I, I, I have looked at curricula very carefully, and I with, a, with an eye towards, you know, what assumptions do they incorporate about? What it is the children need to learn and how they learn? That's a, those are questions that a scientist can address. But um, in terms of designing curricula, I'd like to work with people to, to get better curricula than we have, certainly. I do think we could do a better job, yeah. And, and I, I am involved in some work of that sort. Look, just so it I, doesn't seem totally evasive, what are the kinds of general things that we can say? Uh, first thing is, uh, a lot of kids' reading problems aren't about reading. They're about their spoken language and their knowledge of the world, things that you use spoken language to talk about. And we need to actually think about spoken language as one of the components of reading, and, and moreover, um, the differences in spoken language that emerge in the first several years of life, uh, those have to be followed up on uh, at, once the kid gets to school. So, you know, language development and, now, and development of the things we use language to talk about, uh, that's just one of the huge, huge components of reading. Uh, before we start to talk about print and and, uh, and other things uh, another thing is kids don't develop in stages they don't learn one thing and then they jump to the next thing and then they jump to the next thing there's lots of developmental studies that really provide a much more subtle and, and accurate characterization of how kids progress um, which uh, isn't as simple as um, one masters one thing and then that's the prerequisite for then moving on to the next thing, which is then the prerequisite for moving on to the next thing. We, we oh, so would
0: it be helpful if that was how kids worked? How, it, you would know. Be.
1: <laughs> it would be, but what our, I, I'm I gonna turn this over, to, we're gonna turn this over to people, but you know, uh, real people, uh, but um, it, people, I, I really want, we'll write something out this soon, but you know, this idea of blocking instruction, first we do this, and then once you've got that settled, then you can move to this, and then you can move to that. There's a lot of research that, that showing that that's a really inefficient way to learn. And in fact, it creates what's called catastrophic interference. It, it makes it really hard for kids to accumulate knowledge. I could talk more about that. Um, uh, there's lots of other things. There's a, there's, there's a number of these uh, really uh, important basic points that I think, on the one hand, are true, apply in every kid to every kid in every classroom, but also leave open. Okay, now, how are you good? What's the implication for uh, what the teacher's going to do with those kids in that classroom? And um, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at.
0: Good, good. All right. Well, hopefully, that if people have questions about that, maybe that could be something also that we could help clarify today, too.
1: Listen, don't hesitate to ask. If we can't answer them, we're going to say we can't answer
0: them. Yeah. Yes. So there is the um, the raise hand option, if you would like to ask a question. That, that's probably the easiest way to indicate to me, because then I can have you uh, unmute yourself. Um, but we can also just go off of questions that people put in the chat or people have submitted, to. If people are feeling shy, that's also OK. So. Um,
1: We could talk directly if you like, or you could raise things through the chat.
0: Exactly. Um, Let's see if there are other kind of big topic uh, things to get started on. Um, People just have so many good questions. Well, this was a question that maybe is is r- related to uh, just kind of thinking about the, the science communication issue. And somebody was asking if we have plans to tackle misconceptions about the research the way we did with the ubiquitous baseball study.
1: Oh, <laughs> you know, um, I want to share my screen for just one second. Yeah. Um, I'll show that next time. Um, it was the next slide here. So, is this visible to people?
0: You just ended your screen share. Is it there? No, you just closed it. I don't know how you did, it, but you did.
1: You know, um, we're going to get um, our technology to be better. There's a there's a cartoon by Randall Monroe on XKCD, which is mm-hmm. someone saying, you know to their partner, are you gonna to go to sleep yet? And, and, and they're saying, and the person is sort of hunched over a computer going, no, something is wrong on the internet. <laughs> uh, so I see a lot of misinformation and then I see it amplified by other people. <sighs> I see it being in, you know, this is a relatively ephemeral form, right? I mean, these talks. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that, uh, you know, there's basic misstatements of fact. And, and um, it leaves a person like me in a really difficult position. I can't put out every fire on the internet, every firestorm on the internet. In fact, it would be unhealthy to try to do that. So um, at some point there are... Programs that are based on misconceptions of research, I think, or there are simplifications of research into slogans that are not helpful. And at that point, I think things really do have to get called out because those aren't small fires. And that's not just some ch- chatter on um, Twitter. It's it's if there's serious misconceptions about the relationship between research and you know and practice. I, I'm, those are ones I want to try out, call out. For mm-hmm. example, if you take the five pillars from the National Reading Panel and turn them into sections of your reading block, that's not a good use of that research. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not what the research was really... Uh, it didn't follow from that review that that's what should be done in the classroom. Much more can be said about the National Reading Panel Report and the ways in which it's really, we need to get past it. It's out of date. It's not being used very effectively. We need a different set of um, of um, common uh, conclusions about what's important about reading and how kids learn. So uh, what I'm saying is I can't respond. I mean, it's overwhelming.
0: Well, yes, it's that's too much for one person. And I do feel like this is kind of a an issue of these maybe the 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 science versus the people who are doing the dissemination of information. And unfortunately the people who have been doing the science have not been doing the dissemination.
1: I have to say, you know, when I, I saw this refer reference to the some in some post to the members of the science of reading community. Mm-hmm this will be of interest to members of the Science of Reading community. And I wondered, is the Science of Reading community, does it have any scientists in it? Because, you know, the discussions about how to connect research with practice are really being taken care of by um, practitioners mainly and uh, folks who are not themselves really deeply involved in research and may have actually learned about this research um, pretty pretty recently or secondhand. So uh, I wish there were more researchers like, You know, I'm one, I continue to do research. I'd like to see more people like me speaking up. Uh,
0: Just for people who aren't familiar with academia, that's like not the way the incentive structure is set up to be doing that kind of.
1: Not really, although there are people who really have, you know, made, we need more communicators for sure. Right,
0: so I just feel like part of, when I talk to people, I feel like we have to be so grateful for the people who are out there who are doing the interpretation, who are doing the translation and the dissemination, and, and that it, but it's like kind of unfair to leave it up to them totally too, because it's, that the science- I think we can do a
1: better job, yeah. you and I, and some other, other folks who are really, would like to um, be able to hand people, give people material that's more up to date, that's accessible, but not simplistic, It won't Mm -hmm. tell you what to do tomorrow, but it will give you ideas about what to think about uh, as you decide. And um, I do think we could present things in a more um, uh, uh, accessible manner and also up to date. Honestly, folks, we can't keep talking about the simple view of reading and and phonemic awareness and um, the five pillars to the exclusion of other things that we have learned that take those concepts much further. So much time is being spent on, you know, this kind of entry-level concepts when really we want to get to the next level where the good stuff is, it's hard. It's very hard. It's right, hard.
0: well, because, I mean, those are the things that, like you're saying, are, are help bring people on. And if you are familiar with the science of reading at all, then it would, you know, it can make sense to start with some of those basic, simple things. But it's yes, just staying there.
1: Yes, we're going to go to some questions. There, there are people who want more explanations yeah. of how things, what of the research, and there are people who don't want less. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there have to be a number of options. Luckily, there are other people make providing materials that communicate things to teachers, you know, uh, 10 Top Tools, uh, reading simplified. A number of other, you know, there are resources out there that are excellent, and so um, I do think knowledge is going to grow. It's just at a kind of bumpy point
0: right now. Let's
1: go to yes. some questions.
0: All right. I see we've got Benjamin Woods here, who I know is is new to this. It, he sent me an email, and so what what have you got to, to ask us, Ben? The tough hitting questions.
3: Uh, good morning, Molly and uh, and Mark, and. Um, Sao shang to everybody from China. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I, I think that my situation might be a little bit different to uh, most of the other people in the chat, so I'll, I'll try to not railroad anything. Um, I'm teaching in a, a secondary setting in an international school here. And a lot of our students are from Korean or local Chinese, Japanese. So obviously a lot of students who are coming from non-native English speaking uh, backgrounds. As you said before, Mark, it can be absolutely overwhelming. And especially if you're working in an environment where there's not a lot of support for this kind of discussion. Um, I guess what I'm trying to to sort of get is to really boil it down, where do you suggest a teacher who wants to become informed and, and become literate in interpreting programs or this sort of material and figuring out how to make it apply in a school setting and to share it with their colleagues, where do you suggest we start? So, um,
1: um, so on our, our, our website, there is a page of resources they're are ones that I think are pretty good, um, but but they can be updated, and and we're hoping to maybe make it a more dynamic thing where people would suggest other things and and we would vet them and 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 um, uh, and, and have it be a growing uh, body and of sort um, resources and, and so on. I do think there are so so I can point you to things that I think are pretty good places to start. If however um, And and I'm open to suggestions about more. You know, there's a lot of material out there and we don't wanna repeat what's out there. What would be most helpful? I think a view of reading that is at this intermediate level is what's missing and Mm -hmm. we're gonna try to do that. But you mentioned another problem, which is that we hear about a lot. So um, there are people who are self-taught and there are people who go out of their way to gain additional um, knowledge through professional development or on their own and um, and then they go back to their home schools or districts and uh, they can't get any traction. They're all, they're all hyped up. They've learned a lot. They want to start implementing these things that um, they think would um, be helpful and um, then they run into roadblocks which are either colleagues who aren't on the same page or principal superintendent. Um, so um, we, we'd all like to think that if we just talk together and weighed the evidence and kind of work together, we, could, we have a shared interest in certain goals and we could figure this out. And I believe over time, we will. In the meantime, people at very different places. And so even if you do all that reading and you get very hip to the stuff that's really cool and very relevant, how are you? going? people face the problem of um, being isolated um, because other people don't share the view or um, not being encouraged to pursue. them. I don't have a solution for that other than more and more people sharing this knowledge and this view and kind of um, maybe having a, a bit of momentum towards um, people taking it seriously and uh, not being able to just sort of um, brush it off. So. I think self-education is really important. It's helpful if you do it with somebody else. It's helpful if you can ask questions. It's helpful if um, you don't have to just figure it out on your own. Um, It's helpful for people to point to certain things so that you don't have to just plow through, you know, what seems like, it's just an enormous amount of information in various forms. And so, we can provide some guidance about places to start. We can okay. provide and intermediate things and so on. But um, I, I sympathize also with the question of well, when you get back home, you're going to have to um, play with others, and that isn't always
0: easy. Speaking to people who have done have been in your position or you know are trying to make the connections, recommendations that I've heard, I don't know if well, I don't know if Emily Hanford's APM reports have made it across the ocean, but those are often things that people share you know, with their colleagues as like a, here's a a thing that we can all listen to, or we can all read and just kind of even just like introducing these ideas is helpful. Um, And then there are more and more examples of schools that have made changes. And so that often is also helpful to, I was watching a session recently with a school, a school in Wyoming, where they, you know, just kind of like all the teachers kind of got on board and they um, they, had a, they had a Zoom call about that and how that transition went for them. And so for some people, that's gonna be the thing that convinces them is like watching you know, another school having done it and that it was worth it. Um, and then in terms of like your own knowledge growing, unfortunately the thing I keep feeling like is like you're saying there's so much, it's so overwhelming that, and it's, this is frustrating for me to suggest just because teachers have already paid so much to become teachers. That then to, the idea that they need to continue paying to educate themselves is really a frustrating thing. But there are some options out there, like Mark was saying, the, the Reading Teachers Top 10 Tools, which has an affordable kind of month by month thing, or um, the Big Dippers Project, which like Right to Read and all sorts of different um, organizations for the Reading Institute have come together to make a course that are less expensive than some of the like big name things. Um, and so you're kind of paying for somebody already doing the curation um, that will you know save you some time and a little headache and some trusted, at least a place to start and give you kind of a framework so that then you can think about, okay, this is still confusing to me. I need to go learn more about that. or that's really interesting to me. Let me go see if I can find out more about that. But if you're totally new to it, it's, I think it's hard sometimes for us because it's like we're so steeped in it. So to think about being back at the beginning, of like i don't have even a, a framework of this um it helps
1: I just, yeah yeah i mean, sorry i didn't mean to talk over okay. you the the uh certainly some of the courses that are out there there um, are um are, uh, online things are, are are very good and you know people charge because they're home homemade projects or they don't have a huge amount of support from other other uh, funding agencies or anything however um there's i, I th- people are trying to approach philanthropists to be able to subsidize people to be able to get high quality additional um, training. And there are places in the country where we are actually trying to change how teachers are taught so that you know more of this is introduced along the way. Um, uh, I, you know, I think everyone needs a linguistics 101 course, which is a fun course, right? It's, it's one that tells you not just about all the about phonology and morphology, but, you know, tells you about the varieties of languages and language, linguistic variation and and uh, relationships between print and, and writing systems and speech. It gives the, you a sense of uh, how language works. And um, it's really, really relevant to the concerns we have about kids who come from different backgrounds and so on. So that's a fun course. Uh, There's some of them online. Uh, Mark Liberman at at Penn had a course uh, that he taught at Penn, but you know, the materials that he put up, which are just print and and links to various things are terrific. I'll point, I'm pretty sure they're still online and, and Mark wouldn't mind if we I had some links to them. There are easy ways to find out about really enjoyable things like how language works that are directly relevant to these issues we're talking about in terms of why kids, some kids succeed, why other kids struggle, etc., cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I do think there are places to, to go. Uh, and I'm, we're open to other suggestions. I, I just don't wanna repeat what everybody else is doing. I, I teach a course on reading and, and it's educational implications. You want that online? I don't know if people really would, would want it. Uh, it. It wouldn't tell them what to do and it's still pretty high level academic. But um, you, you folks give us suggestions we'll, we'll, and we'll try to incorporate them. So I didn't really answer your question except to say, A, there are places to start. We can point to them. B, do it with a partner or with a group. C, have somebody you can appeal to to ask questions. Uh, D, um, uh, don't get overwhelmed because it's gonna turn out that there's about six things that you really
3: need to know. Okay, great, thank you.
0: Yeah, this is the this, uh, con- condensing of information The Mark keeps promising, we've gotta get him on, get him really, write those up. Um, yeah, related, I guess, maybe to that of like just keeping educated in things <laughs> like there was some question somebody had about like, you know, I, I think it was after a conversation with Martin Goldberg of like, you know, if teachers should be reading the reading research and articles like should they be staying up to date, like, you know, where, where should they be going is that. So, I,
1: I really have. A th- so. This, this is my, my view. Um, uh, on the one hand, I think, you know, as part of pe- people's preparation for education for the job, it, can, it should include things like um, things about language, um, things about basic research, behavioral research. Most of the research is behavioral. Um, uh, uh, how to read it, so basic kinds of scientific literacy, things that allow you to, you know have radar about whether uh, a finding that comes along is is likely to be uh, uh, true or, or, or how you could find out I, I do think people could have better tre- preparation that would allow them to um, handle some of the terminal you know some mm-hmm. of the concepts better however I don't think it's teachers responsibility to be reading the sci- scientific literature it's right. not we'll really for it. them
0: like it's, if you're at a university, we, we, you know, the university pays for us to have access to it. If you're a teacher, you're going to have to like try to find it behind a paywall. I,
1: I, I don't think it's, if teachers want to read the literature and, and uh, some people, for example, have taught for a lot of people that I interact with, taught for, for a while and then they decided to go back to school. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it can't be at the level of you go, practitioners who have many other responsibilities, et cetera, um, actually reading the scientific literature. Uh, we should be able to provide reliable interpretations of things for you. Yes, it's helpful if you're able to have your critical radar on so that you're not snowed by some somebody. But um, honestly, I think you really should be able to rely on other folks to... Uh, be helpful in helping you through the stuff. It's not reasonable to expect people to read the scientific literature. It's too tough. Maybe the occasional study, but, you know, it's really not a reasonable thing. There's got to be an alternative. If you're holding that, yourself to that standard and that's depressing you because when you pick up one of these journals like Reading Research Quarterly and it's filled with things you can't follow without, you know, Certainly can't, you mm-hmm. can't follow because you don't have the background knowledge. I think that's 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 not your that's not your problem. The problem it's not the level at which you, we want to have people engaging the research, um, and it's not a reasonable expectation.
0: Agreed. People are giving good suggestions. Yes, you could read Mark's book.
1: Uh, I know that my book is not easy for everyone yeah, and you I know, did do,
0: they're, they're up on the Wisconsin Reading League YouTube is uh, has from what in the fall when I did a book study with the, there's like a little bit of my presenting on it and there's a little bit of a study guide for the first should, half of the book. We could uh, finish but, the uh,
1: study study guide yes. Yeah. Um, someone could write a simplified version of it I think that's more oriented towards uh, uh, these questions about practice and curricula, and um, oh, there's so many important issues we're not getting to folks that, that really are, are crucial to think about and for which we do have research. Uh, I, I just feel like we, the science of reading is barely scratching the surface. There, there's so much more to be, to be said um, and, and to build on.
0: Indeed. Do you want to um, speak more about misconceptions and things, or should we move on? (laughs) Um,
1: uh, I see a lot of things that really are kind of Piece together out of individual studies. You know, at some point we need to write something about how people, how researchers weigh evidence. Mm-hmm. They don't go to a study and say that study this was a really cool study. I really like that result, and I'm going to go with that.
0: Mm-hmm. We are
1: always in the business of weighing the the all of the relevant, evidence. All of the relevant evidence. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you find a cool finding, then you have to ask, is it real? And what else? How does it connect with other things we know? So, um, you know, it's a gathering of evidence that tells us, given the current state of our knowledge, what is really the most likely uh, most the, 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 the best motivated thing to thing to do? Um, I'm sorry, I I think there are a lot of people who are enthusiastic about this quote unquote, science of reading uh, and they're kind of self-trained maybe and there aren't enough researchers participating for very reasons Molly was alluding to, there's no incentive for it. And um, so I do see very dated research being taken very literally and even spawning, you know, debates where we're talking about research is 40 years old. And it, this is a field that's been growing and booming. And so to be so lost in the weeds, you know, from, from the old days, and, and it leads to, it leads to lots of things that we know now are not true being stated as they're true because they were true in 1982. Um, The other issue is there's this question about what to do with research and then how to translate it into practice.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: There are lots of things that people think are Supported by the science of reading because, for example, they include phonics or they include phonemic awareness or whatever your favorite thing is. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, you know, the logic is something like well, the National Reading Panel report said that, you know, phonemic awareness is very important and it was teachable. You know, you could teach kids this, therefore, we're going to teach it. And, you know, if it's a really good thing, then, you know, you can't have too much of a good thing, so we're going to do it a lot. And um, the, the, the science can be good, but the translation into the further decisions about what it means for practice, mm-hmm. those aren't supported by the science. That, that's a bunch of additional assumptions. And so um, I see people really um, saying, this is what the research says, uh, and this is how we get from, you know, discoveries in the 70s and 80s about phonemic awareness and the alphabetic principle and so on to curricula that treat that as a kind of fetish knowledge. I mean, it's like so, so there's such a thing as Mm -hmm. um, over-teaching. So, yeah, so there, there are things about the representation of what the research shows, and there's also things about the conclusions people draw from the research about practice that's really the swamp and that's really where we need to clean up and um, I, and I think there are people who are working towards you know doing a better job of it. Right now I think we're at an intermediate point where, where, where there's great interest in using this research.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There are some people pushing it forward. The depth of it isn't what it should be, but, you know, we're, we're moving in
0: a forward direction. Mm-hmm. It's a good preview of uh, next Sunday. We're going to be talking with Ronnie Ginsburg, who I see is here with us, of Reading Simplified, uh, who has, a you know, thinking about a streamlining and thinking about the that issue of teaching, over teaching. how much do we teach, so...
1: Yeah, so you know, for the people in the audience, one of the things that comes out of research is like, um, well, uh, we know that there's a certain amount of um, instruction that's relevant, uh, that's necessary uh, uh, for kids to begin to understand how print relates to speech and those things work together. What you learn about print changes what you know about speech, what you learn about speech changes how you learn about print. Um, there's a huge amount of evidence about that. It's really good science. It's compelling. Um, now, that, the logical conclusion is, we should teach this stuff. And then the question is, how and mm-hmm. how much? And I think the big challenge going forward, one of the big challenges is the dosage issue. How much is, we know what too little is, there's also too much. And uh, I have some ideas about how to approach that. but. Um, uh, we are too focused on the component skills like phoneme deletion or uh, other phonemic awareness tasks or ability to sound out unfamiliar letter strings or uh, uh, other kinds of tasks and and children's level of mastery of those tasks. And less concerned about, well, how is their progress in learning this task relating to their lip reading? In other words, the amount you wanna teach these component skills has to be conditionalized on, well, what's the kid's reading like? If the child is reading, can recognize many words, is starting to sound out, figure out new ones on their own, etc., etc. If the child's reading is progressing, these other things only exist and are only valuable insofar as they are advancing the kids' reading. There's no intrinsic value to a certain level of performance on a phoneme deletion task. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't correspond to anything. Kids who are better at reading are definitely better at phonemic uh, performance on some of these tasks, but that's because they can read. And it, uh, what I'm trying to say is, I really think we kind of lose track of um, the fact that we're trying to get the kids to read where we can specify what that means, mm-hmm. and uh, what we see is a lot of discussion about the components and the, the mm-hmm. somewhat artificial things we do with kids to build the components. I, I think all that stuff has to be judged very, very critically in terms of is this actually advancing the kids' reading, and if it yeah. is, great, and you know, and, and 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 calibrating those things relative to our real goals.
0: Maybe this is a consequence of how the research is done is that the research is often done on these little pieces because those are easier to isolate and say, "Okay, we trained the kids on this. And then we saw did it increase their reading skill. Is
1: is this a clear idea to people? So the research says clearly uh, children who understand what a phoneme is uh, are uh, at at some tacit level. I mean, they don't necessarily have to define phoneme for you. You know, phonemes help you align with uh, uh, graphemes, letters, and and make connections and so on. Great. Um, It doesn't follow from that, that a certain amount of this instruction, and we know also that a certain baseline amount of instruction is necessary. uh, And then it needs to be explicit. Now, how much is required? I don't know. If you look at phonics curricula, they're all over the place in terms of how much to teach and what to teach. I think I said this last week. We just finished an analysis of a bunch of curricula, looking at w- whether they agreed on what sight words are. They don't. They're all over the place in terms of what has to be taught as a sight word and what can be taught as kind of a you know a um, spelling sound you know phonics kind of rule. So um, there's research that's really solid that is part of a story about how these skills de- develop, how things work together. It's It has many threads. That's what we think is, you know, that's been a success. The further assumptions about how much to do it and how to integrate things or whether to integrate things and so on, that's the area in which there's many unknowns. And what we have now is people just kind of making their best guesses. And I think we're going to find out in the next few years that some of those
0: guesses are not good. All right. You heard it here first. People are raising uh, points about spelling. And that, that, of course, is also an important outcome or worry about kids being good spellers. Um, and we will definitely be talking about spelling in a future reading meeting. And
1: Yeah, I mean, if I could just add one thing about that. Sure. Listen, so in, in, in spoken language, there's um, comprehension like from listening, and then there's production, which is talking, Mm -hmm. and um, in reading, of course, there's comprehension, which is comprehending the text, and then there's production, which is um, spelling words and also uh, writing. Um, There is a lot of cognitive research um, suggesting that producing language, either spoken or written, can be a much more effective learning moment or and certainly one that is a necessary complement to listening or or just or reading mm-hmm. so talking is important, <laughs> writing is important and in in my view, these systems are working together and they are informing each other, and so it's all, it's entirely a question of how you fit them together, not whether you should.
0: All right. Let's see. We got two people who have a hand raised. I think Sarah had her hand raised. Can we see some can I talk
1: to someone face to face? Is it possible?
2: <laughs> I if don't they, know if you can see my is? It's but so it's so dis it's uh, so- I don't know if speaker of you does it or not. But um my I think it kind of goes my question might have been answered with what you just said, but like the whole idea of tying orthographic mapping, spelling and and or reading the the letters at the same time as as phonemic awareness and not necessarily doing those in isolation. Yeah. Um I heard um Bruce McCamless talk Ooh. about he's starting some research on that or or kind of like implied that I was wondering what the research says uh, on that if, um, and yeah. where do I go to find this? Like, I am one of those people that likes to read the research. <laughs> so um, the second question is like, where would you point someone that? So
1: I, I gave a talk for a long time. I, uh, there's several versions of this talk on the internet but I should write it out. So um, the evidence about this is compelling. It's not ambiguous, okay? Um, so, uh, and here's the short the short story. Uh, If you want to talk about where does the knowledge of phonemes come from and what is its relationship to print, uh, the developmental story is something like this. Uh, Initially, uh, kids start to begin to break apart spoken words as their spoken vocabularies grow. So this is very young children before school. A lot of research about, you know, when an infant is learning their first words, uh, they're blobs, you know undifferentiated blobs uh, and then as their vocabularies go they start to discover parts uh, and and when they get a little older and we play rhyming games with them um, there that's a way of starting to develop sensitivity to some parts of for example syllables like onsets and rhymes and you know a kid who can rhyme well um, the, there's the rhyme part but then the part at the beginning uh, is often a phoneme or it's a, it's a phoneme uh, cluster like Two phonemes. So, um, through spoken language and exposure to sufficient spoken language, and and having a large enough vocabulary, this is where you know things like vocabulary, spoken language vocabulary, influence reading and are not separate things. Um, kids start to kind of get a rough notion that there are some phonemes like the ones that occur at the beginnings of words. Um, To get the whole notion of phonemes requires exposure to print. We know this from many lines of evidence. We know this from studies of people who are illiterate. If you look at people who do not read and ask, do they analyze words, spoken words at the level of phonemes? The answer is not very well. They can do it a bit because some of it comes just out of the properties of speech. But to get the whole phonemic kind of idealization, the thing that pushes that over is print. Now, I'm not referring to any particular programs out here, but out in the world. But uh, this is discussed in my book, but it's basically the kind of research I've been doing for a very long time. Essentially, what you find is that people's knowledge of phonology, the sounds of words, changes when they become literate. The neural evidence about this happens to be very compelling. There's behavioral evidence that's also very good. But basically, it's the exposure to print and the interactions, the feedback, the going back and forth between print and sound and meaning is in there too, that actually puts over, on the one hand, learning about orthography and what those units, how those units, what, what the units that are there, and also breaking the phonology into this idealized set of this idealized representation that we call phonemes so the implications for instruction there's lots of studies that compared what if you try to do phonemic awareness tasks just using speech or using a combination of speech linking it to print or you know just doing um, business as usual whatever what's going on in the classroom and the evidence there is compelling If you need to to get the kid to the point where phonemes are not going to be in place, this is what the research does not. show. Make sure the kid knows all the phonemes and can analyze the, count the number of phonemes and tell you what the number of phonemes are in spoken words to a certain level of accuracy, and then start with print. That's not what the research says. What the research says is that you're going to learn about phonemes as, through via exposure to print, and that's also going to help learn with your learning about print. So, people who are doing phonemic awareness in the dark, people who are doing phonemic awareness um, and, and insisting that it's a spoken language property that needs to be secure before we can go on to print, that's not supported by research. In fact, I think it's really strongly count. Contradicted. Um, so, what was your question?
0: She said, "Thank you." I think you got it.
1: <laughs> um, yet, one does see, you know, a variety of approaches here in which, you know, people's understanding of what a phoneme is is really—it's all over the place, right? You know, I can tell you, it's a that. conjunction of print and sound. That's what it. It's kind of a thing that includes elements of both.
0: Right. They don't really exist, but they do, because we have put made an alphabet.
1: They only exist because we have alphabets. And frankly, that was the big miracle, that someone realized that you could have this kind of way of representing spoken language. That wasn't literally representing speech, but re- chopping it into units that would make it easier to map them onto print. That was like an innovation.
0: Yeah. Right hard when to I understand again, how it happened. I mean, like if you were to look at we, you know, Mark has an example of this in the book. You know, you look at the spectrogram of speech and there's not there's not the clear distinctions between the sounds in, in the words. Yeah. Good. I, I think you did great on that one, Mark. Let's let's move on. <laughs> Stop uh, me if I'm going on. <laughs> no, you did great. Let's, let's see. I think Amelia also has, has raised her hand for a question. Hi, Mark and Molly. Thank you so much for doing this every Sunday. We really appreciate it. But my question is, in terms of not, not slow walking kids through school, what is the best way to help teachers balance the amount of implicit and explicit understanding that they don't have to teach everything for kids to learn everything, but also, how, what is the best way to set kids up early on for set for variability?
1: What is the best way to make for the to help kids before they get to school so that they're ready to go?
0: Yeah, or even like once they are in kindergarten, uh, the emphasis on all the rules sometimes worries me about. So,
1: yeah, so I think we're in a phase where um, the pendulum has swung. Um, listen, you know, the, the thing I always ask, so the question is, I, I take it is, well, how much explicit instruction does the kid need to know about, for example, phonics, which is a complicated system? And, uh, or, you know, about the vowels of English or something like that, and or syllables. How, how much does a kid need to know about syllables? An issue that we're all thinking about. Um, one thing I ask myself is, how did people learn to read before we started teaching that stuff? Because clearly they did. Um, another thing is, um, I think we are in a phase in which there's an excessive amount of explicit instruction. Let me say as the baseline, we're coming out of a period a long a, a long terrible period in which there was too little and 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 the 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 that is the that observation has to be at the foundation basis of the, any further discussion we are coming out of a period in which there was not enough instruction about how letters and sound work and how, how and and building other basic skills that help kids to read and recognize words quickly and accurately so Clearly, we have to get back away from beyond where we were. However, it is also possible to veer in the opposite direction, which is to say, I don't know. I've somebody's listed 127 rules of English for pronouncing English, so let's just grind through them. Or, you know, I've seen programs that software that has you know spelling reduced to you know very complicated rules that the kid is supposed to learn. And I have to say, that's not what most of us know what, that supports our ability to read. Your, your conscious knowledge of these things is really kind of irrelevant. Your goal is to be able to read and spell. And it's not to be an expert who can tell you what the properties of written English are. I would moreover say that I don't think the characterizations of written English are correct. I don't think it is a finite number of rules. I think it's a very different kind of thing. It's a set of statistical contingencies, but that's a different story. So um, I believe we are overburdening kids with far too much explicit instruction. And the question for the next several years is about dose. Clearly some instruction is definitely necessary We also want to couple that to other kinds of conditions and such situations where kids can learn. So one kind of learning is when somebody explicitly tells you something or gives you feedback. But there are other, again, there's a lot of research people have studied this. There are a lot of other ways in which kids learn that don't depend on that explicit instruction. It depends on having some of that, but then having situations in which the kid can um, uh, learn, learn more and more from their own, from their own experience. Um, the, the, again, I don't want this to be mis, misconstrued. There's no doubt that there's a need for explicit instruction about the way that print works and relations between print and sound. I believe that kind of instruction should always be tied to where the kid's reading is at kids who are progressing more in reading need less.
0: I was going to ask Mark, if you think that maybe the explicit instruction thing is, could it be an individual difference to a certain extent of like how much explicit instruction a kid needs is, or is it good? Are you thinking of it more as individual difference in terms of where a kid is developmentally, as opposed to like, Listen. There's no, too much. I was never to... taught the rules, but my brother, who struggled to learn to read, was totally taught lots and lots of rules. I don't know if it actually helped him.
1: Okay. So there's two issues there. One is kind of what are the typical? What's the typical developmental sequence for a lot of kids? And the answer there would be, I, I've written about this is like there's too much to learn in too little time. You you cannot teach all of the properties of written English and how written and spoken English relate to one another. At the same time, you are also helping kids develop knowledge of uh, their vocabularies, their knowledge of sentence structure, their knowledge of um, the things that language refers to, like world knowledge, um, you, you cannot do all of those things uh, if uh, there isn't enough time to teach. One of the problems with kids who are behind in vocabulary is there are effective ways to teach vocabulary, but they're slow. And they're, they, they will not there isn't enough time in the day to be able, or in the semester, to be able to um, teach the kids all of the words that they don't know and some other kid does. So there's too much to learn and too little time. What needs to happen is to figure out how to make the most efficient use of that time, that it's some combination of explicit instruction, which is targeted in certain ways, setting up situations that allow kids to do practice, which allows them to advance their knowledge, and um, making sure that um, uh, you're you're thinking about how these different pieces are coming together to really advance the goal of reading. Um, uh, you can teach too much. That is definitely what I would say. And what I would ask teachers is, look, time, what are you what are you not teaching when you go into uh, uh, go into teaching uh, advanced advanced super advanced phonics? Uh, and and what uh, what are you leaving out? I mean, something else has got to go. Uh, and um, uh, can can are you are you sure that the, the the teaching that you're doing is actually translating into um, changes in performance on um, reading spelling you know comprehension other things that we can measure so um, right now I, I can't say anything more definitive we will have some more work on this very soon uh, I, I am actually very deeply into this question of dose like what is the right amount for a kid who is at a particular point in development given where we need know they need to go and I think that we will be able to show that there's too little there's too much and there are ways to actually titrate the amount which will um free up time for other things that children also need to get to like all the more All the ways of using texts and for various purposes and being able to answer questions and draw inferences and think, connect what you're reading to other things you know, all of that good stuff that we want to get the kid kid to. But, you know, they need certain basic skills first so I'm, I'm, my philosophy is we need to get in to these things we need to get them taught we need to get the kids to understand them and then we need to get out move on because there's so much more to learn. Was that controversial, folks? I mean, I, I'm trying to be pretty, pretty basic in terms of logic here.
0: I saw lot of nodding, nodding along. It sounds it seems like you're not. You're nodding. You, you
1: should not feel compelled to teach kids a certain. There's no fixed amount of time you have to spend on any of these tasks, like...
0: Right, returning to your earlier point of kids succeeding at reading is the goal, and so... Yeah,
1: and these tasks are useful in getting kids going, and we'll do some of them, but we're always going to be kind of monitoring it in terms of these other, the real goals.
0: Yeah.
1: Come on, folks, hit me with the hard, tough ones. I can
0: take it, <laughs> or I
1: can bail on the question.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, Alex, he's got has got a question.
3: Um, this was going back to your linguistics one hundred and one. Yeah. That question. Do you think that um, I'm not pushing this because I've already been trained in it, but? Um, something like Orton-Gillingham, which calls for the development of a strong linguistic understanding of English language, would be a useful training for people to explore. I'm not saying that everybody gets, I'm not saying the solution is certify everybody in Orton-Gillingham, right? Uh,
1: I I think Orton-Gillingham has the the, the right idea that um, teachers need to know about spoken language and how it works. Right. and I think in terms of how if you're talking about professional development or pre, pre-service training or something that will be really helpful, uh, having an understanding of these aspects of language, you know, like the parts are all nested within one another. They're not independent. Mm-hmm. That's really important because if you treat them as independent, you're, you're doing damage to the system and you're making it harder to learn. Um, I can't endorse or in Gillingham or any other program right now, um, I, I actually think there are more direct ways and uh, and, and more important. I uh, said so not more important, but um, my notion of Linguistics 101 is not just phonology. And it's not. Um, it, it is about how spoken language works, how written language works, how language variation works, uh, how people comprehend each other. Uh, the, Variation that we see among individuals for a variety of condi- reasons, developmental conditions that might affect reading or spoken language or learning, in general. So um, I, I prefer to to point people towards linguistics 101, on one which is, of um, course, um, I, I remember fondly, and and um, I, we could set one up. Linguistics 101 for teachers would be great. If I could just offer one other dogmatic opinion, um, I, I think you can over-teach phonology. I mean, there's only phonemes, phonemic sensitivity, phonemic awareness, onsets, rhymes, moras, everybody got what a mora is. Uh, the, I think it is, does everyone need to know the phonetic features? that are combined to form phonemes in English? I don't think so. Um, So I I do think there is a level of linguistics 101 that's really great and is kind of, doesn't chop things too finely, more finely than the teacher really needs. As a question, I would say, how much of this is really helpful? And where are the real core ideas that everyone needs to know? And how much of the rest of it is like, you know, wrinkles?
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: I think this content knowledge comes back to, to the thing that you and I, Mark, always talk about and probably have talked about on a past reading meeting, too, of just thinking of it. And Rebecca raised it in the chat as well, the point of the teacher knowledge versus the instruction. What does that then translate into instruction or what does that translate into what kids need to know? And so and that's I mean, that's that hard thing of, I, you know, again, I, I'm not familiar with any of the training programs that are out there. But i would be worried if it was like teachers are being trained to have such depth of knowledge about the english language and then they think that that's like what they need to put into the kids heads um and that that's not what we're saying what it's we're another saying.
1: kind of danger zone where it's great if you learn a lot about language that's and, and mm-hmm. you know third I, I i love it but um uh Right, and it can involve the additional her- step <laughs> of well now my, I need to teach this. No, that that doesn't follow. That that, that requires some other thought. Yeah.
0: This chat went by so fast. People think we should lead a course. Um, background
1: knowledge um I'm, are we allowed to ask questions of people
0: <laughs> I mean it's your show mark <laughs>
1: go for well, it's it. our it's ours actually but um I
0: guess I guess what do we want
1: <laughs> I guess um what's the what else can we do I mean so one thing I see is that um, the commercial sort of publishers kind of it's the victory of, it's the real victory of balanced literacy in the sense that, you know, the big curricula that you see have everything in it. And then it's kind of left to the teacher to figure out what to do. And this seems like, you know, irresponsible because it should, the teacher shouldn't have to improvise a program. They should, imp- able to make, they should, they need to make decisions about what to do in their particular classroom, but the things that need to be covered and, you know, what the best path is through getting from where the kid is to where they need to go. I mean, that's stuff that we should be able to spell out and not just leave to, we're leaving an awful lot for teachers to have to figure out. Mm -hmm. How does anybody ever decide what to teach? Is everyone teaching something different? Is everyone sort of improvising based on, Materials that they like from from uh, that they've coll- collated off of the internet. Uh, uh, are people just um, willing to um, use whatever curriculum they happen to their school district happens to have bought? What 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 else could we do to like um, make it easier for you to n- n- make your decisions about? Well, th- I'm here. This is what we need to get to, uh, and 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 uh, uh, making decisions about the most efficient ways to do it. I, I I see a lot of problems. I'd like to hear what people think would be good solutions.
0: Sarah, do you have a solution for us?
2: Well, one of the big things I'd say is, um, so our. it was interesting, our district, um, just this year, we started piloting a science of reading-backed curriculum, and before that, like, and at the beginning of the year, I've done a deep dive this year. But um, short story, and then if you mind, I'll go into a longer story. But um, but basically, we need to educate our curriculum directors, and we need to educate our um, school boards, and we need to educate our superintendents because. What teachers like me are, are required to do, we are required to teach a given curriculum. Now there's you know small things that unfortunately I you know dove deep into science of reading as our district is implementing it, right? But it but there's other places where the teachers are learning about it and the and the district's not on board, yet the teachers are legally required to teach a given curriculum. So that's, that's a, that's a big issue. Can
1: I ask you about that though, you and others? Um, So I know there are these investments in the curricula and sometimes I think they are, um, it's kind of virtue signaling thing where um, we may not actually know how to improve literacy for, you know, kids who are, who are, who are struggling, but, um, um, but we're going to buy a system and, you know, it, it,
2: it's signaling that we're trying to do something.
1: And, and who's
2: this uh, best salesperson, per- right? Like, Yeah, you know? and so I,
1: I, I've been actually in. Yeah, so I'm looking into. Uh, yeah, so I know things. Okay, yeah, can't say everything. Uh, so um, uh, let me ask a question. What if there was a moratorium on buying these curricula? I mean, leaving aside schools where you know the materials are falling apart or they're 40 years old. What I see is, you know the, you're supposed to use the curricula, but then the door to the classroom closes and you' are kind of try to fill in other things or you know use the parts of the curricula that you, that you like and ignore the parts you don't. Some of these curricula, there's not enough time in a school year to do all the stuff they have. So people are obviously making choices. I guess my question is: Teachers, really, would, there, there are no miracles to be found in the latest edition of anybody's curriculum. Those, those things are serving a different kind of function, I think. And um, I, I, I ask this sincerely, knowing it's pretty naive. Uh, what if there was a moratorium on buying these things? Where um, Uh, the money that was saved could be uh, put into supporting teachers uh, through professional development and coaching and other kinds of things. And also we could do some, um, you know, education is an enormous marketplace. We should be able to exert some power to be able to get materials that are actually more usable and more effective. So what is the, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to pick on Calkins, but, you know, the Hawkins group has decided to get you know some basic skills phonics religion and maybe they'll do a good job with it and maybe they won't i don't know but what i deeply resent is that the new materials that they're going to come out with are ones that people are expected to buy
3: mm-hmm.
1: i yeah. had curricula that were were ineffective that were um that were not supported by various, that left out crucial things that are part of children's reading. Yeah. Now they've recognized that and they're going to incorporate that. And by the way, sell it to you at a special deal. I feel like, no, uh, you, you, you put out a product that really had a serious defect and now you're going to correct it, great. We'll give you our old big books and, and pay for the shipping costs and you give us the new materials because frankly, why are we paying for your mistakes
2: yeah i i really uh, amelia made some a uh, couple of good points you know some teachers that if the curriculum's not good and they know there's things they'll go on like teachers pay teachers but um but other another one is that um, she said make it available free of charge digitally and then charge for paper paper versions and ironically the curriculum our district is um, is piloting this year and actually we're piloting it um, but adding the writing component next year Mm -hmm. is uh, most of it is available free of charge it's the one that's available at um, at the Engage New York yeah yeah and
1: there's also the one that Nell Duke is developing and and uh, I believe this is not work that I personally do I'm not a curriculum development person I got other things but The uh, idea of open source um, curricula, not meaning any, like Wikipedia, anybody can change it. Open source meaning uh, it's put together uh, by uh, uh, groups of people who are knowledgeable, informed, and so on. Um, It's tested in various ways, of course. Um, uh, But then when it's made available, um, it's... um, much less expensive. It's much easier to update. It's much easier to tailor to particular places. And basically, I think that would undermine the traditional curriculum model pretty well. So um, there are people who are working towards that.
0: I wanna let poor Rebecca, who's been shaking her head, make a comment. She Tell got if
1: I'm wrong, guys. I'm, I'm ha- if I'm wrong, I'm wrong.
0: Well, she got worried about the teachers pay teachers. She had the same point. If we don't buy curricula.
4: So I'm a, i am um, I am a uh, district coach state uh, uh, trained and have been uh, participated in some school transformation and turnaround from a priority school at the second percentile. So we were low and we moved it, we turned it quick. There's a lot to this. So um, starting with the conversation of common core standards unpackaging and repackaging them because it splits things into little pieces and someone asked earlier about performance uh tasks and that's that's a an issue that I struggle with as well because dicing things up at some point we have to put them back together and kids have to do things integrated and I talked the last time I like I noted buckety instruction Yes. there's okay. I am this is what I'm looking this is what I'm training into and I'm um, districts. I'm actually doing some pro bono work with some people because the bridge across, yes, we have to do phonics, yes, we need to do the phonemic awareness, but where are we doing the space practice and the um, the retrieval practice and integration and the writing and the, and, but then being able to measure them um, and still have really targeted measured instruction. And then there's implementation science when we're talking about curriculum directors and principals and um, having a school-wide instructional goal that we keep coming back to our action plans. Do we understand the standards? Do we know how to put them back together? Do we know what a learning target looks like? Do we know what success criteria really is that's not contextualized, um, that's not activity driven? And again, implementation science, and then like someone else talked about, then we have to carve out place and time for teachers to look at the work I backwards design with teachers from the larger unit assessment and then we coach within. But the biggest problem I haven't even be able to start this work is that there isn't some decent curriculum. And the note the one that you noted, Mark and one other, I would say are dumpster fires. Malpractice I won't even I tell them I, I'm, I tell my boss please don't make me ever have to work in that area. Just find a different coach for them. All the other ones, all the other curriculum I can at least work from and I can overlay strong instructional routines, but that requires job embedded coaches, coaching with a really strong, knowledgeable coach and an instructional goal that the district and school are aligned in. So there's so much more than just, but oh my gosh, if we'd have a moratorium on curriculum, Mark, our default curriculum in the United States that we are not talking about is TPT?
1: No, but what I, what I know, I I I, I hear you. I'm what what I was saying was no. Just use your curriculum that you have now and supplement it with Teachers Pay Teachers and Pinterest and so on. And maybe we can give you some other good materials in the meantime. But don't invest in another one because you're, there's no miracle to be had there and you're just spending a lot of money. Use that money to actually fill in some of these other kinds of um, needs. And um, in the meantime, try to work towards a curriculum we could all get behind and say with right. unequivocally, that's something I really want to teach because my kids are going to benefit from it and it's um, we could do better. This is very frustrating for me because I'd like to be able to recommend things and I look at these things and I go, how does anyone teach from them? And, you know, it's, it, it's mm-hmm. not Somebody's tuned like to kids you. who are struggling at all, you know. I, so I, I, I really want to resonate with what you're saying. The other thing is, like, can we, in, what, what about coaches? So coaching is a, is common. Uh, is it a recognized sort of position now in, in the uh, elementary education sort of um, environment? And moreover, uh, should we be focusing on making sure our coaches are really well trained? If we have really well trained coaches who are out there in the field and can be working with teachers and so on and helping them solve problems, is that an effective way to actually um, to move ahead? Is that mm-hmm. where we should be encouraging philanthropists to put their 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 um earn it, you know their money?
0: In June, we're talking to Margie Gillis of Literacy How about this issue of coaching. It's definitely one that keeps coming up. People are talking about it everywhere. I'll just say, Rebecca, I'm so glad you're in charge of the Michigan Reading League. This is great. I'm just, (laughs) you've got so much knowledge, so much experience. It's so great. People out there doing good things, doing good work. What you thinking, Mark?
1: Well, since we all agree on everything, um, uh, can I just ask one other question? Which is, you know, there's a lot of evidence that certain kids are behind and certain kids are ahead on the first day of school, and and that's not how they're being taught to read. Hmm. And um, so, you know. uh, clearly pre-k and bef- even before has to be part of the equation and and you know I know people are thinking about this and and there there are huge challenges but um, you know having kids not be gobsmacked when they get as when they get to school because they are better prepared for they've been socialized into what it's like uh, gonna be like' They've been exposed to a broader range of language and they learn more about different topics. They've gotten experience that goes beyond their immediate experience, which is something that education can do. Uh, when, when our, our, isn't prevention part of the, you know, prevention of difficulties part mm-hmm. of the solution? Because here we are, we're all talking about trying to help kids. Two very difficult things. If your vocabulary is, is is narrower or less well built up for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, that that is a very difficult gap to overcome in school, through, given the amount of time and experience that's, that's required. Wouldn't it be kind of better to try to work with that kind of stuff earlier so that there's less of a kind of catching up to do? I, I, I really just would like to know how much better we would be doing if we were able to kind of put kids on a bit more level um, yeah. uh, level uh, before they even show up. That's not to say we don't need to do well once they show up, but I mean, the discussion right. about what happens before they get there has to be part of the deal.
0: Right. If there are already differences on first day of school, as you're saying, right, then the, then you need to go earlier. You need to go to universal pre K and all of that kind of things. Yeah.
1: Mhm. Well, folks, it's Sunday afternoon. We can let everyone go. We 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 uh, we want to continue answering questions and and finding ways to do it. Uh, we want you to ask harder ones, like Mark. I don't believe any of that stuff is really going to help me. My kids are doing this and this. My teachers, if you're a principal, I'm t- my, my 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 I'm talking to principals now in certain school districts where my teachers don't know anything about what a phoneme is. They don't know what any of the components are. So. Don't get it fancy with me. You know, we we really need to have a certain low level of basic shared knowledge, and that's 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 the prerequisite to something else. I, I'm I'm just saying there are. I, I appreciate the complexities and difficulties here, and want to be um, don't want to give glib answers. You know, so who should we be teaching what? What's the level of knowledge that's really most useful for people? Some people need want more, some people can absorb more, some people less. Their jobs may not permit them to do lots of other um, self-teach, self-self-education, et cetera. How can we really um, work with what their situation is and where are the pressure points where we can get the most most um, most movement? And you The the more you challenge the researchers assumptions about we'll just do this, uh, the better.
0: Good. Yep, this was just a prime one, we'll do it again. People will come back with harder and harder questions. Stump the scientist.
1: All right, (laughs) what's happening next week?
0: Next week is Marty Ginsburg. That's great and and another was local Wisconsin person.
1: Hopefully we'll have our theme song worked out by then. And yeah, a few you of these. Yes, okay. <laughs> so thanks everybody for, for being here and appreciate the work you do.
0: Yes, thank you guys so much for joining us. We really, we wouldn't be any, we wouldn't be a show without you.
1: <laughs> I don't know how much of a show we have. Yes, <laughs> thanks folks. And we'll follow through, eh?
0: Yeah, exactly. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening to this reading meeting recording. You can find more information about past and future reading meetings on our website. We hope you'll join us for future meetings.